This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Welcome to Spice Bags, where three opinionated ladies, Blanca, May and me, Dee, have a dish about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Welcome to Spice Bags. Um, We are delighted to be here in West Cork. Of course, when you're listening to this, we will not be in West Cork. (laughs) But we were invited down here to the Celtic Ross Hotel to celebrate their 25th anniversary. And if you haven't listened to our episode that we recorded with General Manager Neil Grant, uh, Chef Lawrence, and also two food producers, Jeffa from Duras Cheese and Caroline from uh, West Cork Eggs. And you should definitely tune into that. Um, you'll find it on Headstuff Plus. Um, so if you are listening in for the first time, um, we are Spice Bags and our podcast episodes come in three delectable flavors. We do deep dives, which are comprehensive explorations into a country's cuisine. We also do staple chats where we dish about a topic amongst ourselves. And lastly, we do in conversations with individuals who have been impactful on the international Irish scene here. Uh, we hope you pick a flavor and we hope that you like more than one. Today, we are thrilled to have Scottish-born fish smoker Sally Barnes, who has been smoking in West Cork since 1979 and has been informally called a national treasure. She only smokes wild fish. Her salmon is sought by many here in Ireland and abroad. And most recently, Sally was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Irish Food Writers Guild. Yay, congratulations, Yay. Sally. Thank you. Thank you. What a privilege. And an Welcome, honor. Sally. Thank you, May. Nice to see you. We okay. are so delighted to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, you are Steve. a national treasure, <laughs> formally you. and informally. <laughs> Smoker professionally sm- and recreationally. Yes, yes that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sal, can you actually talk a little bit about your childhood in Scotland and your young adulthood? My young adulthood. Childhood in Scotland was fab. Um, because I didn't know anything else. You know, you don't. You grow up somewhere, that's what you know. Um, I I was born in Hamilton, which is south of Glasgow. Didn't live there very long, don't remember any of that. Parents moved to Fife, to the east coast, to a tiny little village called Lime Kilns. Obviously part of the Industrial Revolution, they must have burned lime there for some cement making, presumably. So lived there until I was four, and then we... Stayed for a while with my uncle in in Pollock in Glasgow until the house that the parents had had uh, ordered bought. Um, was you stayed finished. in Pollock. That sounds I a little great, like karma. Hilarious. <laughs> How hilarious is that? It was like in, in your destiny. Absolutely, Pollock was the way to go. Um, not yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. and then moved to the west coast onto the estuary of the River Clyde, which is. Absolutely breathtaking, so beautiful, until I was 12. And I'm the eldest of four girls, so, you know, you're the big sister. You have to be a good example to your wee sisters. That was the dictum. Um, So it made you very responsible for everybody, and I'm afraid that that still pertains. I wish I could shake it off, but anyway, I suppose it's a bit late. So moved from Scotland and the known world to Sussex and the unknown world. Mm. After about three and a half months of living and going to school there, girls' grammar school, I'd gone to a regular academic Scottish secondary school and was plopped into the girls' grammar school, where I was a year ahead of the other students that were my age, because academic education. That wasn't an issue. The issue was that it was very hard as somebody with a broad Scots accent to be taken at all seriously. In fact, after about four months, one of the sort of cliquish, because it was cliques, one of the cliques came up and said, hey, where are you from in France? And <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I was really offended and I just thought, oh God, what am I doing here? Who are these people? So, Sal, oh, 
So Sally, mm-hmm. what, while you were doing this, was food a big part of your growing up? Pollock. <laughs> back to Pollock. <laughs> going back to Pollock. We stayed in Pollock with my mum's brother, Gordon. Just to insert here, Sally makes a gorgeous smoked wild Pollock. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uncle Gordon trained as a chef. Uncle Gordon in the 50s went to Switzerland to learn more um, chefing skills. And when he came back, he was a chef in Glen Eagles, which is five, you know, pretty prestigious. Yeah. And then he he left there and he was picked up and asked, would he teach um, in the catering college in Edinburgh? Okay. Which he did. So Uncle Gordon, bef- before he passed, and he passed very young, very early, introduced me to the joy of a horse muscle when I must have been about four or five. Oh, wow. Yeah. And never heard of horse muscles. You know, knew about other muscles from the beach, but not horse muscles, which are freshwater. And every single one had a pearl in it. So, And it, as a child, just like going, oh, crunch. Oh, God, what was that? Now I'm a bit older. If I found pearls in a horse muscle, there would be a special little box brought out to house them. Uh, they were just beautiful. So yeah. Gordon then ran, uh, what did he call it? It wasn't a hotel. It wasn't. It was guest house on the Isle of Bute, Rothsey, which is where my father's family had, my father's family had come from. Anyway, Uncle Gordon ran that. And as children, we would go over for, stay for a week with him. And I could make the butter curls for him, which was just such fun when you're little, making the butter yeah. curls to go on the breakfast plate. Little or adult. I mean, yeah. I could make, I could make butter curls for a living. It's satisfying about it, isn't it? Bizarre. Anyway, so that's, well, that and mum, mum cooked all the time. My dad worked away Monday to Friday. He was, uh, uh, what would you call him? Travelling salesman. He worked for Nestle's in the day when they were quite small and handled mostly just milky bars. So my sister and myself were the milky bar kids and because um, we're the eldest. And he'd come home at the end of the week with broken bars. God, Scotland sounded very idyllic. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Horse muscles and broken yeah. Milky Way bars. Yeah, 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 not bad. And then you had sliders. You had iron brew. The best ice cream in outside of Italy is available in Scotland because there was so many German... Is no, it deep sorry, fried? Italian. Oh, <laughs> God, no, that's a, such an aberration, deep fried I'm Mars joking, bars. I'm joking, I'm joking. Yes. No, but there's um, many, many Italian prisoners of war that were okay. taken to Scotland. The men in Scotland were away fighting the Italians and the Germans, so they were, they were stuck in internment camps, a bit boring, and the women were trying to manage the land and farm the land. Mm-hmm. And just now and again, you'd need a big, strong man, so... You know, some of the men were allowed out on day release to go and help with the farm work, and okay. things happened. And a lot of them decided to settle and stay. Um, and so the, there's, there's even a, a Glaswegian weekly newspaper for Italians living in Scotland. Oh, wow. <laughs> L'Italiano, Scozia. Um, oh, and wow. it's available in, I hope the deli's still there, fantastic Italian deli. Can't remember where in Glasgow it is, but it's called Fatsies, which I think is a fabulous name. So yeah, yeah ice cream—you wouldn't ice think cream. so, would you? Huh? And I mean, also Scotland is not exactly where I would necessarily <laughs> want to dig in. Well, it's relative, mate. If you've been used to California sunshine, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But in Scotland, as Billy Connolly used to say, <laughs> we Scots are, are blue. We go white in the sun. Yes. <laughs> We're normally blue. So true. Mm. And was eating fish like an integral part of your childhood? Nope. Or no? Nope. That, that was the... No, nope. my father was afraid of bones and fish and we lived in a fishing uh, village. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. So just occasionally... So Pollock mother, was a fishing village. Yeah, but no, Pollock was next to Glasgow. Oh, right. There's Sorry. a fabulous park there where there's yeah. an amazing burrow collection of artefacts robbed from different countries across the planet and brought wow. back as somebody's <laughs> collection so it's been made it's available uh, it was made available to the public it's an amazing collection lots of etruscan heads 
and I went round with mum and she was saying to me, do you think they just knocked the heads off those statues because it was easier to bring back just the heads instead <laughs> of the whole thing because they've got a lobby full of them. Yeah, so yeah. it's Pollock Park. This is where um, the burrow collection yeah. is. It's wonderful, wonderful. And so when you lived in the fishing village, though, mm. you just your dad was just, he just didn't entertain Frightened fish. Bones. Yeah. Frightened the bones. Yeah. So if he was away, maybe mum would get a bit of flatfish now and again. But no, we didn't really eat fish. Yeah. And it was only when I came here that I realised I didn't really know how to cook it. So mm. there was a lot of learning when I came here. It was great. So, and... You know, just to piggyback on what you just last said, what, what brought you to West Cork? Well, a series of unfortunate incidents. <laughs> <laughs> Not all unfortunate. Oh, you know what you're like when you're young and you... I had a couple of friends who were living here um, and just, you know, settling here. And I came over to visit and met somebody, as you do. And I'd I come mean, from it's... London and the dirt and the smog and the noise and the... And he came to West Cork, and it was like going back to Scotland. Yeah. Because I, I didn't settle in England at all. Didn't yeah. Didn't like it. Um, so coming here was like finding that favourite old pair of slippers in the back of the cupboard and thinking, oh, that's pure comfort. Yep. It just felt... <laughs> felt like a fit. Right. Yeah. 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 One thing um, we've spoken a lot about uh, when we've been down here is the community uh, spirit in West Cork. Is that something you experienced as an outsider... Um, arriving here back then in 1975 was was that commute were you welcomed did you find it difficult to settle in there's a very very good question um, I think because we're so different you know mm. we were very different your I husband thought, was English yeah he's, okay. he was English um, mostly it was amazing but there were people in the community who were very afraid of these people who didn't speak like them look like them didn't seem to eat the same food as them, um, had different perspectives. Yeah. And that unsettled a lot of people. Because that, that would have been fear. happening across West Cork at that point, wasn't it? Because there was a lot of people moving here. Again, we spoke about it earlier today with Jeffa yeah. and Caroline. Well, Caroline moved later, but Jeffa came in the 70s as well, yeah. I think. So it, there was an influx of people there from certainly was. from from the Netherlands, from Germany. I mean, so many people to West Cork specifically. So and it must have been happening. at the same time... The young people here that were brilliantly well-educated, fantastic education system here, left. We're leaving. Left. Yeah. And there was a huge void. You know, there was nobody of our generation left here, or mm -hmm. very, very few. Um, so the parents of the ones that were missing were a bit rankled that all these young people were coming in from outside and their, their progeny their had had to were, leave. Yeah. What the hell were these doing coming mm -hmm. here? Well, we'd been there. <laughs> we knew what they were going into and yeah. we didn't like it. So a lady from Scotland with no particular love of fish or upbringing with it, apart from being from Pollock, <laughs> moved to West Cork <laughs> with an English husband where you got warm and cold welcome. Yeah started smoking fish uh, that took a while that <laughs> took a while and there was something that i had to add in 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 between there yes. because i did work in food as a student um I, during the school holidays i ran the snack bar in a pub in sussex lovely yeah yeah so i learned how <laughs> really? to yeah cook sausages um you know it wasn't very exciting but yeah it was it was good experience you know yeah yeah and you don't know do you you just do it and yeah you learn a lot about food and handling food and what's yeah. good or what's not good uh, yeah so before i had the child i went out fishing which was just wonderful i can't tell you what an amazing experience that was the the, the whole freedom of it being out on the ocean and seeing virtually nobody no other yeah. human being and um my Former husband was working tangle nets, which are very big mesh, very loosely stitched on head rope and foot rope. So it's like a yeah. baggy carton. So you were catching, he was targeting things like turbot, crayfish, spiny lobster, um, monkfish. But there was very little market for monkfish because people didn't know what it was and it is pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. Yeah. And people didn't but really it's delicious. know what to... Oh, it's stunning. So good. But I mean, we were getting... Sort of, 
two shillings a pound for it or something. You're just thinking, oh, God. Anyway, so I ate a lot of fish. Yeah. Because didn't have an income um, for yeah. meat and stuff like that. I and mean, it was years before I started buying meat. Well, if your husband was obviously in the business, that would have been your... Day boat fishing. Your injection oh, into that industry. I'm so spoiled. I, it's really hard to get day boat fish now. Yeah. They're, they go out for far too long because fuel costs are high, fish stocks are diminishing, they've got to go further to look for fish, mm -hmm. sorts of things impinging on it. But it makes it difficult for me as a processor because I really need yesterday's fish today or today's fish today even better. But if it's been loitered, I know it's sitting in ice, but there's a whole school of thought about fish on ice and ice on fish. Oh, right. Because it's fresh water. And all bacteria need a source of fresh water. So if you've put ice directly on your fish and that ice is melting, it's allowing okay. bacterial activity. So it will spoil faster. I'm really interested. Whereas if the ice is underneath the fish and it's melting, it's not melting it's into not, the fish. Yeah, it's okay, not I get adding you. water yeah. to the fish. There is... There's some very interesting activities going on now around dry curing and aging fish, which mm. initially I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I don't think I want to experiment with that after five days and open the cupboard and it's woof. But no, there are ways and means of, yeah. of dry aging fish, which is a really interesting concept. So just taking you back a little bit again, mm -hmm. um, at what point did you start? Or where did the idea come to start smoking fish? I suppose a combination of the the fish that was available in the shops here, because there weren't fish shops. There weren't. Hmm. Um, no fishmongers or anything? No, not in the day. No, you would buy directly from the boat. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, there was no fisherman's co-op. They did have in some of the supermarkets, which were not really supermarkets, they were the village shop, would get boxes of kippers from Scotland that you, there were bright orange you could nearly read in the dark by the glow of the orange dye and they were rubbery and disgusting and they were the lads were fishing for herrings and I thought herrings mm, a good kipper is a wonderful thing mm. really so except when you're hung over and someone orders it in the hotel that you're staying in the night <laughs> like the morning after uh, I love it as hangover food oh no it's brilliant I love it I love it as hangover food I worked in Killarney for a summer after school before I moved to Dublin yeah. in the Glen Eagle Hotel oh, and you know it was you'd be out you know it was 18 you'd be out drinking whatever and so you'd be a bit hung over and you're serving people and someone in the restaurant for breakfast would obviously order kippers and you'd be bringing it out just choke. I, I was choking back trying not well, to. Well, they weren't bringing out Sally's kippers. No, no this is it. It probably was the standard. The Scottish, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that, but they were. They were imported from Scotland, mostly. Yeah. So, but they weren't the first fish that I played with. The first fish was mackerel. Okay. Because, yeah, I think when I came first, because it was so exciting, every evening we'd go out in the punt and feather for mackerel. So you'd bring them in and you'd gut them on the way in so they're nice and fresh and then you'd come home and you'd go, right, what are we going to do with them tonight? We fried them last night. We baked them the night before. I soused them the day before that. What's now, sousing? Pickling with vinegar. Oh, okay, sorry. You can Didn't cure mackerel yeah. fillets in vinegar. Love it. Well, yeah, if you don't eat too much I of mean, it. sorry, I love the sousing. The concept or yeah. the words. Yeah, yeah, the words. Yeah, yeah. It's pickled. Pickled, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> pickled absolutely. hair, pickled mackerel. Um, is it okay for me to say, Sally, you have made the most gorgeous smoked mackerel, but you can't eat it yourself because you have just... Overdone it. Overdone mackerel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's, that period of three weeks was my life's share. I thought... And then looking for fish on a couple of occasions, I was thinking, oh, God, I can't get this, I can't get that. And it was our friend Alan that said, I don't know why we don't smoke mackerel. He's another Scot and a very good friend. And I said, because I can't abide it, Al. I'm, I'm not going to spend my life doing something that I don't want to eat. He said, people love it. So we started doing that and people do love it. It was a very, very good selling product. It was wonderful. Okay, but young Sally Barnes smoking mackerel. Young Sally Barnes smoking mackerel. Take us to the beginning. Tea chest. Tea chest. Long conversation. Smoking in tea chest. Long conversation with the ex-husband about the whole 
how did people cure fish? You know, when you've brought all that fish on, it, it was really a, a load of trout that you brought in one night, and they they were from a lake. The lakes had trout in them in those days. All the lakes had trout, and there was one lake in particular where the trout were really beautiful. They were big, four and a half, five pound fish. That's a big trout. And he'd gone angling, because that was his passion when he wasn't out commercial fishing. Something wrong with me. Um, and he came home with five. The smallest was four and a half pounds. And I was quite cross. We didn't have a freezer. I've got two babies. They're not going to eat much trout. There's two of us. And so I said, why did you kill them? <laughs> why don't you just put some of them back? Because we're not going to eat them all. We don't have a freezer. So rather than lose the rag, long conversation about how did people manage before? What did people do before? So they salted it. We, we were already salting mackerel for pot bait, you know, just packing them in barrels, a layer of fish, a layer of salt that would keep the fish f fresh for using for bait for crayfish, lobsters, crabs. Um, so they were salted and then they were smoked and all that there was was those rubbery Scottish things. So I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll give the mackerel a try because I don't want to taste mackerel again, fresh. <laughs> I, I, I do eat them when we've just finished cooking a batch and they're all oh, hot yeah. and they're spitting fat at you. They're, they are really quite fab. You go to, the, to think, well, I will, have, I will have one of those and then they evaporate. They're just gone. I look yeah. at it and I think, oh, it looks quite nice. And I'm like a seal and it's gone. And I think, that was nice. Anyway... Tea chest, hole in the bottom. That was our only means of creating a chamber that we could get smoke into, that we could hang fish over. And we used to buy our tea in a tea, wooden tea chest from the shop in Union Hall. They were bringing tea in themselves directly and bagging it, so they had the boxes. So I blagged one, cut a hole in the bottom, set it up on two breeze blocks so the air could get in underneath. And one of those little camping pans, aluminium oh, yeah. thing, drilled holes in that, packed it with sawdust, lit it from underneath. Fab! Smoke came off, so we hung whole fish, gutted, obviously, yeah. over the top, wet sack on the top in case it all caught fire. Um, and that was the beginning. And how long do you have to leave the fish smoking? Well, wow. we didn't that know instance. when we did it first. Was, we? It, was it successful? Until you heard the slap. And you thought, oh. oh, that's the fish cut then. Because the it's fish fallen. would just collapse and it would fall into the pan of ash, of course. Nice. Couldn't fall anywhere else. A few tweaks were done. And then a bad debt. We were left in due of quite a lot of money um, after a, the best salmon season ever in 1979. And the man had taken the fish. That was That would be normal fishermen when before there was any sensible um fish sales avenues the buyer would come to the pier or negotiate with you and arrange to meet you at the pier or mm. wherever and they would take your fish they wouldn't pay you at the end of the week they might pay you at the end of the following week but more likely it would be the two weeks in hand they called it that they would have a time to sell it yeah and get the money in so that they could give it to you those were the days Anyway, he didn't pay us. He processed the fish, he smoked it, and he sold it, and he drank the proceeds. I know. So he felt very embarrassed and guilty. But So he said, look, here's what's happened. Really sorry. It's two years um, since this happened. Take the kiln in lieu of some of the money. So I thought, right, I can use that now. The children were that much older. You know, yeah. they were mobile. So I taught myself how to use it, and that was it. Yeah. Wonderful thing, because in the first winter that I'd got a kind of handle on it all, I needed lots of instructions on filleting, because I, I couldn't fill it. I'd never played with fresh fish. I baked them whole in the oven. Yeah. Salt and pepper, brilliant, but filleting them. So the first salmon that I filleted, it took me 40 minutes to get one fillet off. <laughs> I thought, oh, shoot, this is not going to work, is it? But you just, you build up confidence. Yeah. You get one go at it, that's the trouble. Mm. You get one run, and if your knife goes 
wobbly then you've left a lot of flesh on the yeah. on the carcass so yeah taught myself that then the salting was quite interesting because i knew there was salt involved so sprinkled a bit of salt in the fillet looked all right after about 20 minutes washed it off smoked it in this wonderful new machine and then let it sort of come back to room temperature brought it in tasted it and it was utterly tasteless it was really interesting i thought what's wrong with that why hasn't it got any flavor yeah and you need the salt to bring up the other flavors because yeah. we have salt in our blood salt in our tears it's fundamental in the human body mm-hmm. so i reverted to the Torrey Research Facility in Aberdeen and PIM and asked them if they'd have any information on smoking salmon. Well, there there was only wild salmon those days. So they sent me various booklets. I think it'd come from DEFRA, from the Torrey Research Facility, which was a British government-sponsored research facility which worked specifically with fish in Mm -hmm. Aberdeen. No better place. And they suggested that you dry salt your side of salmon for 24 hours. And I'd already been twiddling a bit and sort of increasing the duration of the salting. But then I thought, blimey, 24 hours. That would virtually be a cricket bat. You know, you could play cricket with that because it would have taken so much water out. So you tweak all these things because in the interim, when I started, the vacuum packing wasn't common chill distribution definitely wasn't common Mm. um so yeah and those sides that were sorted for 24 hours would be hung like salamis above bars where people are smoking pipes and cigars fags and anyway so presumably you needed all that salt and desiccation of the of the raw material then you would have to smoke it really hard to try and mask some of the salt flavor mm. by adding I lots see. of smoke flavor. Red herrings, that's where the red herring came from. Okay. Because they salt the herrings on the boat at sea and then bring them in in barrels already salted, whole. But they'd be poisonous with salt. I mean, to our wow. palates, we are we are on reduced salt compared to what we would have been on a hundred years ago. Okay. It was a very important conservation preservation um, substance. Still is. Anyway, salty, salty. Uh, yeah, you just I just tweaked and gave tastes to friends. And this being a very cosmopolitan community, and it has been for a long time, there were a lot of people that would be well familiar with smoked salmon. Yes. So the feedback that you get from asking friends, you know, would you mind tasting this and give me a critique? Please don't say it tastes lovely because that's not helping me. I want a critique. Tell me if you think there's too much salt, too much smoke, not enough this. So that was really helpful. That was a good lesson, actually. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, actually, I've got two questions, but I mean, first, I'm going to, and I'm going to also have to cut you off, because I know, because... May I love the double question? I know, I love the double question. question. Dang, yeah, because I can only remember one thing. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about um, wild salmon in Ireland and in Scotland, but also the wild salmon in Ireland when you first came here and the culture around that oh wow um yeah oh we're in a different we're on a different planet now to the way we were then um everybody ate wild salmon it was so common um there was a a researcher doing work on the irish fisheries at the time in 1920 i can't remember if it was dr wentworth or dr piggins he referred to wild salmon in Ireland as a verminous fish. Oh. Yeah, that takes some believing, doesn't it? There were just so many of them. Oh, wow. The, the rivers, every river had its run of salmon. And it's, it's actually remarkable to believe now. Isn't it? Yeah. But, but then people who were indentured into builders' yards, boat builders... In the big house, if you were indentured to work in the big house for nine years, and that would be quite normal. Yeah. You'd sign a contract that you wouldn't have to eat salmon more than three times a week. Oh, yeah. Same with oysters, wasn't it? I mean, they were poor people's food because they were so widely available. 
But then I suppose with changes in agricultural practice, um, yeah, the numbers would have started to diminish. That 1979 was the last year when Colin fished for wild salmon. And the best day of uh, fishing that year, 1979, he had 249 salmon for the day. Wow. If you get that for a, a, if you got that for a whole season towards the end of the commercial sea fishery, mm. you'd have been really happy. It, it was phenomenal. But we, we acceded to the EU in 1976. And in exchange for agricultural subsidies, infrastructure subsidies, Ireland gave away 95% of the fish in Irish waters because most of the politicians, I'd say all of them at the time, were from farming backgrounds. They wouldn't have been familiar with fish. Yeah. And it wasn't deemed to be anything special. Mm. People ate fish on Friday. You know, if you didn't live along the coast, you ate fish on a Friday because that was the way. And most people hated it. Because it was, as well, I've heard this reasoning that the reason we don't eat more fish as well is because you were forced to eat it on a Friday. Exactly. And if you lived, if you didn't live on the coast and lived anywhere inland, it was being brought in, transported, you know, not... No ice. Not, no no uh, refrigerated vans, mm -hmm. you know. And so you were actually getting really smelly really old fish or saltling or saltling salt was yeah. a big one so people just but didn't curiously the house that i live in the the man who lived there in the 50s and 60s had a friend who was a very keen angler up in clare galway mm -hmm. and the postman who used to deliver there on his push bike in the day is he's dead a while he's dead quite a long time since he told me that when he was a younger man the, re the, the owner of the house that I'm in now had the friend up the country who would catch a couple of uh, trout, or a couple of salmon on the river, probably in the Moy or somewhere like that, wrap them in brown paper, tie a bit of string around it, name and address on it, pop it in the post office. Yes, I've heard that too. So by the time um, the postman got on a bicycle towards where I live and I was the last house on his route he said there was a grand cloud of blue bottles following me <laughs> up the lane but so you know no ice and the same with chickens the, during the war the Townsend family moved to uh, Rosemary and Willie moved to London during the second world war we have to be specific these days and her mother um, in the village would kill a chicken on a Friday morning, pluck it, gut it, same, brown paper, string, walk up to the top of the village, the post office, and post it to London. And that would be picked up by the Stop. mail train in Skibbereen that afternoon, taken straight to Cork. It would be put straight on the ferry. And there wasn't a Sunday during the war that they didn't eat a fresh chicken from West Cork in London. Can you believe that? Oh, wow, You'd be really hard pushed to do that now. Yeah. It is amazing. Yeah. yeah, those are good stories, eh? Yeah. I was actually, again, piggybacks mm. on my next question, which is ah. um, we, were, we were talking a little bit with Jeff Gill yeah. um, about sort of community, you know, when you guys first moved. And I remember somehow you would also say, you would used to talk to me about um, sort of the bartering system and how the bartering system almost helped then sort of the food producers evolve, right? And can you talk a little bit about that bartering? Was, yeah, that, that's a brilliant system. Brilliant system. <laughs> um, because we had a lot of fresh fish and the neighbours, some of the neighbours really liked fresh fish, especially, I'd love a pollock. And they'd say, oh God, do you not want a bit of hake? Oh, no, 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 no. If you'd have a pollock, and I'd be thinking, mm, right. Pollock's a really funny fish. It's, there's a slime on the skin of white pollock that it's feated. You know, the fish comes straight out of the water. Then you know it's fresh and it's golden. They're very beautiful when they're first caught and they're still alive. All fresh fish are. The iridescence is stunning. Mm. But this slime on the skin is just as awful, awful. <laughs> So, but they'd rather have that than a, than a lovely fresh hake. Anyway, that was turnips, spuds, um, you know, that's how we did the trade. I see. But then between ourselves as food producers, 
you there would be eggs there would be there's a friend Jill who doesn't live too far away from here who was doing pork pies and sausages and so there was wonderful bartering plus that allowed people who were in food to critique your food not the people that might buy it because they got the money there there is a mm -hmm. difference i don't mean to be no that's no, you know fine. what i mean yeah. um so they would give you really good feedback and hopefully vice versa you know a bit more pork in the pie or a bit more a bit more of the jelly or you know what i mean that was really, really helpful having so many people around that were also interested in food and very much into cooking. Because there was no takeaways here. You could get a bag of chips, or no, not a bag of chips. You could get a packet of crisps in a pub, but there was no food in pubs. Really? Mm. So Different days. But also, um, and because we are an international food podcast, yeah. can you talk a little bit about some of the international producers um, who were around during that time and how they might have changed their palate? How you know? Mm -hmm. um, it was cheesemakers. Um, blessed are the cheesemakers, mm -hmm. and most of my friends were cheesemakers. And curiously, what they were doing to preserve milk proteins. There were a lot of similarities between what they were doing and what I was doing, mm. which I found fascinating. Um, Bill Hogan would have been a, a very close friend, and he was a wonderful cheesemaker. Then Myrtle was absolutely amazing for all of us because mm. she had established Ballymaloo House. She knew what she wanted on her menu. She wanted really good quality food, um, hopefully made within, you know, within the area. And so if anybody started making food in the area, Myrtle would get wind of it or people would really run into each other. You yeah. know, it wasn't a big community. And also because there were so many other people coming into the community for holidays or to visit friends who had holiday homes here, you had a very cosmopolitan community coming in. Um, you know, a lot of Americans coming mm. over and they would be tasting. I wouldn't say that they would be the ones that go for the cheese. That was more the the Germans and the Brit, the British visitors, the French, French to a lesser degree. Mm. But the Americans loved their smoked salmon. Did any of the international community here or the visitors for that matter over the years influence your um, smoking of fish or how you treated fish like I'm just thinking of Scandinavian influences or European influences and, and how mm. they how they eat fish were you ever influenced in that way a little well not for not because mine's really simple I like <laughs> simple I add salt and wood smoke yeah full stop and magic and I yes. let the love. fish do the talking oh yeah it's love it's huge amount of love um but somebody had said to me when I was first, you know, learning the filleting and getting the getting the salting regime and knowing when to stop the smoke, because you it's easy to oversmoke as well. Somebody said to me, So do you think you could lift the ribs out when you're filleting? Because it's making it difficult to slice. Oh. Which had never occurred to me. And then I thought, Oh no, that's gonna take four. Ever. <laughs> but it's another one of those things. You yeah. get into a rhythm and your knife is sharp and you whip the ribs out as well. And that made it much simpler for people that are not handy with a knife to, 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 to slice it. That was their big worry. And, of course, the tradition for slicing at a bonkers angle, about 45 degrees, is because that's the, the degrees that the bones, those pin bones, lie in the flesh. So if you're cutting it parallel to the skin, you'll be cutting through 32 little bits of bone. Okay. Um, so I thought, oh, I could take it a step further and be really nuts here. Pull out all the pin bones in the middle of the smoking process because the smoking process is quite slow. You don't want to do it quickly. You want a gentle smoke. The, you're both smoking and removing moisture from the flesh. Mm -hmm. It's one and the same thing at the same time. The moisture, again, we're back to the bacteria. We're mo removing that because it stops bacterial activity. But everywhere that I've pulled a pin bone out, there's a little hole, which has not been 
sealed okay. over, if you get me. So it, we, we pull the pin bones out by hand, trim the skin back down so that it'll sit flat, mm-hmm. and then put it back in to finish the smoke. Guys, I just want to interrupt our conversation for a second um, to tell you about another podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network, which we are very proud to be a part of. It's Ireland's largest podcast network. And the podcast is called Basically with Stephanie Presner. And um, basically from understanding roles in government with guests such as Taoiseach Micheál Martin to breaking down the complexities of the pandemic with Professor Luke O'Neill, um, Stephanie speaks from about from personal finance to uh, mental health, personal health and everything from death to taxes. Sounds very interesting. Um, But Stephanie is here to break everything down to its basics. So that's basically with Stephanie Presner and it sounds absolutely amazing. So make sure and check that out. And as always, if you become a member of Headstuff Plus, which is five euros a month, you have access to all of the shows, plus any bonus material that each of the shows um, produces. And there's also if there's any like merchandise or extra stuff on there, plus you're supporting all of the talent and producers of podcasts on the net- network. So I know that we would really appreciate it. The Late Night Nod features original music and improvised interviews with guests from a fictitious world of arts and culture. Each episode weaves a conversational thread through tales of inspiration, excess and heartache with some of the creative world's best-known personalities that you've never heard of. Join some of Ireland's most talented actors and comedians as they step into the world of The Late Night Nod. So going back to our conversation with the legend that is Sally Parnes now. <laughs> so Sally, I mean, we've, we almost touched on it a little bit just now, but um, you are really famous for being a mentor um, in your woodcock mm-hmm. smokery. And there's just been pit people of all shapes, colors, you know, nationalities. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like. Can you talk about what you've taught them, but also what they have taught you in return? Mm, that's a very good question. <clears throat> because I've, I've been a member of Slow Food for a long time. And then Slow Food developed an offshoot called Slow Fish. And, and the first Slow Food event that I went to was Terra, um, uh, Salone del Gusto. I think it was in 1996. It was a long time ago. Before I got involved with them, I'd been involved or I'd been approached by um, a French institution called L'École des Etabliers, the, the, the tables school, the school of tables or the school of, you know, what the tables signifies. And they took postgraduate students. It was, I think it might have been an Erasmus funded thing. It was to improve their English, get them working hands-on in a food industry, but not back home. Mm. So I had this wonderful young woman called Alexandra, who was 21 when she came. And really, she was here to improve her English for three months. So I was on my own in the workshop, and I taught her a little bit of filleting, but, you know, all the process from the filleting onwards. Yeah. And she was to stay for three months. And by the end of the second month, the salmon season had started in earnest. So there were fish coming every night. And she said to me, Sally, when I go back to France, how will you manage? Oh, oh, what a treasure. So I said, oh. Alexandra, I don't know, but I have to manage. You know, it's on my shoulders. I have to manage. So she said, oh, I could stay for till the last ferry in September. What a doll. And she was absolutely wonderful. And I thought, oh, she's an absolute keeper. She came to visit me the year before last yeah. with her two daughters. Oh, that's so nice. And she said, mm, OK, if we come down to the workshop and work with you. Aww. Oh, it was amazing. So nice. So I took another three different students from that college and then I think then I had gone to the slow f- Salone del Gusto and I'd met the Slow Food Organization. And I spoke with them and I said, you know, 
I need help from time to time. I'd love to take some of your students that are doing the the, the university degrees, the mm -hmm. masters in um, gastronomy, if they'd like to come and work with me. I'll give them accommodation, board and lodging. I just want them to come and learn. So I've had, I've got a new family. And everyone that's come, bar one, I've been very, very <laughs> lucky. Everyone that's come, been absolutely amazing. And so good for my soul to meet young people mm. that are so well informed, so keen to learn. And, you know, they're educating me about stuff that... Because when you're involved in life and work and everything else, you're, you've got your eye on your particular ball. Yeah. And the other ones are bouncing around you. So to have these amazing, bright young people come in, most of them have been Italian. Mm, how bad. Yeah. They're just wonderful. And then also from different backgrounds, different yeah. cultures, they're also studying masters in gastronomy. So you're tapping into their knowledge, Absolutely. their experiences, their enthusiasm, everything. And so. occasionally they cook. Oh, they oh. cook. Oh, oh do yeah. they cook? Though the funniest one is Pietro, who's who's come back three times. I mean, he doesn't need to come back. He chooses to come back and help me in November, which is really flat-out time with Christmas stuff. And he's been working in, in vineyards, so he'd that'd be downtime for him. But he just so loves Ireland. Because it's the, we're not just cooking together and eating together and... Yeah. I take them foraging. If the well, pre-COVID, we'd be going to gigs and yeah. just getting the big Irish experience. They absolutely love this country. Did any of them cook with your fish that stands out in your memory, and you were just wowed by? Yeah, by it. And it was something really daft. It was. Oh, sorry, this sounds not daft. It was kippers. Unusual. Very unusual. Yeah. And somebody had done a spaghetti with kippers. <laughs> you know, and you're going, mm -hmm, right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, because of course, you you know, you encourage them. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. It blew my socks off. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Shallots, kippers, maybe a tiny bit of, um, uh, it's the Trinity, isn't it? Tiny bit of uh, celery through it as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, how simple was that? And it was utterly delicious because that's what I like. Simple. And most. You'll never make me cultural... keep her, Sally. Sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> Does it happen? Do... Uh, no, I don't do them anymore. There's a problem with the herrings, okay. which nobody will address. And that breaks my heart. Anyway, that's something that I've been An episode for another day. Oh, God. So we're, we're outside, I mean, outside Ireland. Yeah. It's your favourite place to eat fish. What country do you think does it best? It doesn't have to be one. You can, And then also, can you give me some specific dishes? Oh, Lord above. Um, There's the well, double um, question. It would have to be Italy. Um, favourite place to eat. Uh, you know, phew, yeah. Um, whole turbot cooked on the bone with potatoes. Cereal tomatoes, you know, really, you know, single, what they call it, singly state tomato. It was this the most simple, beautiful, exquisite, not fussy. I love, I love fancy food. I love Michelin food. But mm. I also absolutely adore, keep it simple. If the fish is fresh, we've gone to eat in this restaurant in Verona. And I'm looking through the menu and I'm going, oh, look, you, you have to try donkey. You must eat horse. It's really good. It, you know, you haven't lived until you've tasted all these different things. And culturally, Irish people wouldn't be inclined to eat horse. Yeah. But it is fab. I've eaten it. Good woman. Isn't in, it fab? In Italy, yeah. In Italy. Yeah, it's wonderful. But and France, I think, as well. Yeah, France as well. But this was... Um, the, the chef came out. It's late-ish, of course, in the evening. And we're faffing and humming and high. And he said, we have the turbot here. And he brought it out and he showed it to me. That was brave. Because he didn't know who I was. Of course, I yeah. lift the gills. Ooh, they're red. The eye's very clear. So I thought, this is going to cost an absolute shirt and trousers. So when I asked him how much, he told me, I'm thinking, 
holy moly, that's not expensive. And I looked at my two companions and I said, are we on for the turbot? It's going to work out about 20 euros ahead. Oh, oh. spot on. Yeah. So we Turbot's incredible. Turbot's incredible. I'm now going to deliver the worst question anybody could ask you. What's your favorite fish? Ah. Ah. Probably bass. Bass? Probably bass. But not this farmed grep. Wild, wild bass wild is bass. quite the thing. Ex-husband caught one behind you on the beach. Down at the yeah. beach behind us here. He, he caught two on two consecutive Sundays. Both were specimen fish. So they were both over 10 pounds in weight. Mm. The first one, lovely afternoon, this fabulous fish driving back it was autumn it must have been September and there's a wood that I particularly like to forage for mushrooms in and there was a particular bleatus up it wasn't the sep it was the luteus it's it's a nice mushroom it's not as hunky and not as fabulous as a bleatus edulis but it's damn good so I stuffed the cavity with those wrapped it in foil forgot to take the head off and I dropped it in the foil and I could hear all this noise of what the hell's going on and the fish was so f- fresh the gill flat <laughs> oh, was no. still moving okay. <laughs> oh god so the head was removed that brought my blood pressure down a bit oh it was really spooky <laughs> that's so fresh it's still moving its gills <laughs> stuffed it with the mushrooms it, and we sat and ate it we didn't have two pennies to rub together we couldn't afford a bottle of water if it was available at the time Thank God for wells and taps. Yeah. So no wine. But, you know, I, we were saying, if you were the wealthiest man in creation, the wealthiest being in creation, mm. there's no restaurant that you could go into and order that, that which we have just eaten for <laughs> yeah. free. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah. get bass still with rigor mortis. And you mentioned mushrooms. Is Would that be your favorite or one of your favorite ingredients to use with fish or do you have favorite ingredients to use with fish i do with the well the limes with the smoked haddock if i've got a good cure on it i don't cook the haddock I just slice it thinly i have to add at this juncture the eu regulation requires us to freeze down white fish for 24 hours at least before we offer it for sale because of nematodes you know okay fewer adult fish in the sea more nematodes logical so we have to freeze it the nematode isn't a problem our bodies the hydrochloric will deal with it yeah and your blood heat will deal with it but the reproductive part uh, is and a nematode for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what it is it's a worm Worm. it's a wiggly worm it's a wiggly worm it's an intestinal worm which um, yeah the fish eat them when they're tiny oh yeah in the Benthos, and then it hatches and um, it yeah. settles in. Haddock, I love because normally haddock don't get them because they eat shellfish. Okay. The German for haddock is shellfisher. Oh, isn't that something? I'll never forget that. Yeah, exactly. Eglafine, or in Italy, you have to learn all the names. Yes. I mean, I work with Latin names because I did Latin at school, and that that's a help. But um, mm. thinly yeah. sliced, thinly sliced, smoked haddock, smoked haddock. Lime juice squeezed on it, splash of olive oil, scratch of black pepper. Makes the most simple, delicious supper. It's a sweet fish. Okay, Sally Burns, I'm going to ask you the last question, and I may have to cut you off. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about the future of Irish fishing? (laughs) In three minutes. No, I'm joking. You're on the clock. Do you go ahead and we'll... we'll, um, (laughs) We will cut you off at some point. Right. Um, I was talking about this earlier. We have no respect for the natural world. You know, when they ban biological washing powder, I'll be a happy woman. Mm. because that doesn't stop when it's gone out the back of your washing machine. It's munching its way through the environment, munching anything that it comes across, contaminating. Anyway, and then it ends up in the sea, it ends up in the rivers, um, and that's been going on for such a long time now. I, I do fear 
for the for the future. I mean, the fresh fish is one of the most sensible things that we could possibly eat, mm. but we have abused it. It's being overexploited in almost every instance. Um, too much power has been taken away from the actual fishermen themselves if they were more able to determine that they know what's going on out there and they're not all villains. Um, you know, if there was instant reporting of, God, there's really heaps of juvenile cod off the southwest coast, which there was five years ago, and the fishermen were crying because they were having to dump it because they didn't have quota allocated. Yeah. They'd be fined, or worse, for landing it. It's perfect fish, but there's a lot of institutional issues that need to be addressed. I was just going to say the shortest answer I was expecting from you. I was going to say that's also subject for another podcast. Oh, please go. Can I just say, and we might cut this afterwards, but one of the things that's really annoying me lately, and my friend is a fashion designer, mm -hmm. and his clothing is made of linen and cotton and really Wonderful. beautiful uh, fabrics. But um, there's a lot of sustainability is almost trendy word at the moment and there's a lot of clothes you can see bought in shops now that are promoting the fact that they're made from recycled plastic bottles <coughs> now everyone thinks that that's a real plus right but you're you're going to wash those in your washing machine so where do you <laughs> think those like microbes of like little plastic is going to go like you just said it made me think of it when you mentioned the muscles. detergent muscles they analyzed muscles in the uk um, supermarket shelves straight from the farms you know from people selling them 100% tested positive for microplastics and a lot of it is out the back of the washing machine it's those fibres from the mm -hmm. yeah but it's because recycled clothes people feel like they're doing a good thing but yeah. they're not well maybe they just need to change the weave to yeah, make sure that maybe. it doesn't break into particulate matter or we need to put very fine filters on our mm. um, uh, what they, we don't have them down here sewage treatment plants <laughs> 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 we, don't have, we, we don't have many of those <laughs> what, what are they called? Yes. <laughs> called something but yeah, yeah we have to give cognizance to the fact that our oceans are being polluted constantly and it, I don't like to be negative but somebody has to say it well ending on a positive note okay what would you how can we help as consumers or what do we what could we look out for or what fish should we be buying or where should we be buying our okay. fish like that kind of positivity yeah. to give people action eat lower to do down something. the foods eat don't eat the big fish don't eat the you know the the tunas and the she said don't eat the tunas don't eat the farm salmon Sorry, I have to say that. Um, and even if it's organic, it's still farmed. Oh, fuck. Sorry. We can edit that out. I can edit that word out because that just... Oh, no, I just wanted to say, even though it's... No, that's what I'm it saying. I'm it saying it even though it's, it's labeled organic, yes. everyone has to remember that it's still farmed. It's farmed. And, I think that's and obvious, isn't it? No, it's no, not. It's not. What people think organic means it's, it's not farmed. They think oh. it's wild. Oh, no. And when accosted by me inadvertently catching hold of his tie <clears throat> a Fisher's Conference, and when I said to one of the promoters of such mm -hmm. aberrations... I said, how did you get that certification? Because you're putting dye in it. For my money, as a, a person who likes organic food and would choose that every day over anything else, you're, you're denigrating the whole meaning of organic because mm. you're putting a dye in it. Mm. So for me, that's rubbish okay positivity ladies positivity, positivity. right so eat what can we low do? down the food chain eat small fish okay like sprat okay. demand sprat i haven't seen sprat for sale here for and where years can, where can people get that because i well oh. for example what about people who and i'm Gannet. sorry buy their fish Gannet in fish so should people be shopping in supermarkets for no. their fish no 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 no, okay. no because it's all part of the the sort of <laughs> commercialization yeah. um, uh, of of the food chain which which is a mistake you, so going to fishmongers is a positive thing as very well very positive thing or, or if he'll you're in the cold you fishing how, boats or yeah, fishing he'll tell you how to prepare it how to cook okay. it i'm so proud of gannet fish yeah, in galway he is amazing he's selling with instructions roll you have no idea how much roll is dumped 
off. Really? You, you don't know anything about it because it's dumped at sea. Wow. It's And it's future potential generations of fish. It's incredibly nutritious. There's no bones. Yeah. You know, hallelujah. You've got all that fish protein, all those amino acids, three, six, and nine, the omega three, mm-hmm. six, and nine. No point in just taking three. You need the balance. Yeah. We were never destined to eat krill. I, it does bug me that the krill pellet industry for humans was really created for pellets for fish farms. Okay. So... Great and sprat, back to the sprat. Yeah. Wonderful little fish, white bait. I can't remember the last time I saw a plate of those for sale. Yeah. I ate them in England because they were on a menu somewhere last month and it wasn't on the main menu. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to be the witch. I really, really want to eat some sprats. Mm. They're the easiest fish to cook. You cook them whole. Sprats come together just to spawn. So all they've got inside their bodies is Raw and milk. Oh, okay. That's oh, it. Yeah. There's no digestive juices. They are coming together to spawn. That's when humans go fishing for them. What's wrong with that picture, Dee? Mm. So we're taking them at the moment when they should be allowed to reproduce. Making, making other little sprats. Other little sprats <laughs> for the future. But the worst of it is that they're not being sold for human consumption. They're being sold for pittance. For pellets. Yeah. Oh. And I suppose as well... Another I was going to say... Oh, sorry. Another thing to maybe say to listeners is to go to... When they're going to local fishmongers, if they don't have... I mean, there are a few and far between fishmongers sometimes. Yeah. Um, so maybe looking at the ones that can deliver, there's a lot of... Yeah. Yep. solid good fishmongers there now who are. deliver nationwide yep. Yep. there are um, and there are you might have to drive to your your next town or something but it's worth the trip oh right? it's certainly well maybe not now with fuel prices <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> we've, we've got a fabulous fish shop in Union Hall mm. um, Glenmar Shellfish absolutely brilliant um, there's a couple of fabulous fish shops in Skib dedicated fish shops which is what you want. Yeah. You know, those guys know fish. It's For convenience, yeah, if you've got them in the supermarket, handy out. But you tend not to find people that are well-versed in fish behind the counter. I I inadvertently bought two fabulous John Dory's other favourite fish in a Morrison's in Scotland when I was over visiting my mum. And I said, how much for the Dory? And the young lad didn't know what they were for a start or oh, is that what they are I said mm-hmm. and I'm thinking oh shit I said how much are they he said I'll give you them the same price for the lemon sole I thought blimey 850 yes please <laughs> you're like I'm not saying I'm anything. not saying a word I'll take two then but yeah, yeah. that's a big problem yeah. with fresh fish that you know you need to have proper education you need to have education about fish yeah. and food yeah start to finish definitely getting kids identifying fish as children learning to cook as children mm-hmm. makes for a much better life for everybody because they'll be more in more inclined to experiment if all you've got in the fish department is cod haddock farmed salmon regardless of whether it calls itself farmed or organic. I mean, it's misnomer. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, much better to have people more aware, especially when you live close by. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, does it? And to eat fish, I presume, because, mm. I mean, in Ireland, so we're, out. we're not great no. at eating fish no. in general. So I guess to all islanders listening here, we want you to eat fish, but be conscious of where your fish comes from and get Irish fish where possible from reliable sources. Exactly. And exactly. buy Sally's, <coughs> buy Sally's smoked fish as oh, well. Or come and learn how to do it. Yes. Even better. So tell us, um, just I suppose to end then, the workshops are open again yep. this year. First people of April, can book into them. People can book in and come and I'll share secrets and teach you things Ooh. that you can do it for yourself at home. Amazing. A wee bit of a scale up from the tea chest with a hole in the bottom, but it's very basic. <laughs> materials that which people would have in the cupboard at home I'm, you know i'm not advocating that you go out and buy specialist equipment but it certainly if, if you have access to something and you're eating you're thinking oh god no i don't think i could eat that again today 
smoke it and it changes it completely. It becomes something else that you might enjoy. Yeah. So that's why I did the mackerel. And that's where it all started, really. And very lastly, uh, we congratulated you on your award. But just so that people who listen uh, know what we're talking about, you were awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Irish Food Writers Guild, who May and I are both members of. And the awards by the Irish Food Writers Guild are given out every year. But you can't nominate yourself or anything like that. It's it's selected and nominated by the guild members and voted by the guild members. And I mean, I, I think I'm not giving away any secrets saying it was a unanimous yes oh, to give you. you this award, Sally. And we were all very proud bless to give you. it to you. And just massive. Like I, it's a small, only I feel it feels so it's a small thing to do for someone who deserves so much better and so much more for what you've done and your life work with fish it's huge i can't tell you i I just keep having to pinch myself and i'm so humbled and flattered and honored it it's yeah this means more to me than anything else i mean we you know I won the Great Taste, the Supreme Champions Award at the Great Taste Awards mm-hmm. in 2006, just before they banned the salmon fishing here, which was a bit unfortunate. But that was wonderful. This is, this is the absolute top of the pile. Absolutely fabulous. Oh, that's so nice. I'm cuddling it. Mm. Thank you. It's going nowhere. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Sally. My pleasure. For coming. And um, yeah, it's such an honor for you to be here. It is an honour and a privilege for me to be here. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Spice Bags Pod. If you like what you heard or better yet, have a question or response or comment to anything that we said today, we really want to hear from you. So please contact us at Instagram at Spice Bags Pod, Twitter as well as the same Spice Bags Pod or you can email us at spicebagspod at gmail.com This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.